Hello and welcome to the May edition of The Jewish Views in association with JW3. I'm Phil Dave and coming up I will be speaking to Adrian Seif of Finchley Reform Synagogue about their new eco-shul. What does that mean? Well, we'll find out a little later on. And I'm Tony Honigberg and I will be talking to Laura Marks and Julie Siddiqui of Nissa Nashim, the Jewish and Muslim Women's Network, regarding their new campaign, Hashtag Active Allies. And I'm Clive Roslin, and I'll be talking to Rabbi Joseph Dweck, the senior rabbi of the Spanish and Portuguese Sephardic community, and we'll be talking about the Syrian Song of Torah, which should be very interesting. And I will also be talking to Robert Elms, a broadcaster and journalist known for many, many different things. I'll be talking to him about his new book. And our rabbinic thought will come from Rabbi Harvey Belofsky. But first, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. The Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, expressed his deep shock over the bomb attacks in Sri Lanka and offered Israel's assistance for what he called a despicable crime. He said the entire world must unite in the battle against the scourge of terrorism. It came as Sri Lanka admitted a major intelligence lapse before the Easter Sunday atrocities in which 360 people were killed and more than 500 wounded. Here, two Jewish candidates have been revealed for May's European elections to represent London, one standing for Nigel Farage's Brexit party and the other for Change UK, which is pro a second referendum. Lance Foreman is a Brexiteer who said a red line was crossed when Theresa May invited Jeremy Corbyn to Downing Street for talks. And pro-Europe Karen Newman has said she's sickened by the Brexit debate between political groups who are only looking for their own advantage. A former leader of the Green Party has apologised for comparing climate change denial to Holocaust denial. Caroline Lucas, who's the MP for Brighton Pavilion, made the comment during an appearance on LBC Radio. In making her apology, she said that it was not the best comparison, but it's been reported that she made a similar comment back in 2007. The Catholic Church in Poland has condemned the burning over the Easter weekend of a Jewish effigy with a black hat, side locks and a large nose, which was meant to represent Judas. A leading bishop, Rafał Markowski, said the church would never tolerate manifestations of contempt towards Jewish people. Residents of a small town in the southeast of Poland beat and burned the effigy. The incident was also denounced by the country's interior minister. Two Jewish billionaires have pledged a total of £93 million towards the restoration of the iconic Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, which was ravaged by a devastating fire. Lily Safra, a Brazilian philanthropist, said she'd give £16 million, and the French owner of L'Oréal, Francoise Betancourt Myers, pledged £76 million. Meanwhile, the American Jewish Committee also announced that it will donate funds, stating that the cathedral represents centuries of faith, culture and history for all, not just Catholics. And finally, a Jewish mental health campaigner in London is spearheading what he calls the world's largest mindfulness lesson. Johnny Benjamin says his initiative will raise money for his new charity, as he asks schools across the world to take part in activities to improve mental health. He wants schools to set aside 30 minutes at 11am on Friday the 10th of May for relaxation techniques and breathing exercises. 
Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, what an action-packed edition of The Jewish Views this is set to be, and we'll get underway in just a moment's time. But before we do, this is the first time that we've all been together since Pesach, so did we all have a good one? Absolutely amazing. Yeah, lots of family, too much food. Too much, I don't believe that for a second. Bloated out by matzah. (laughs) <laughs> much too much food. Absolutely too much food. I thought you were going to say much too much matcha. No, I, I can't love say it. Matcha. I couldn't say it. I'm I so determined. <laughs> I love it. And the thing I love most of all, absolutely love guests. I say the Seder service with the family. But yes, what, in terms yes. of the food or what you actually uh, love about both. Passover? The food. Well, I would suggest that you can I has to guess at your favourite food. I reckon that you like those little uh, those little coconuts. No, the cinnamon balls. That's what I think you like. The cinnamon balls. You've got it. <laughs> and, and, I thought, and I'm not supposed to eat them anymore. I've worked with you too long, Clive. And I thought you'd like the horseradish. <gasps> I, I, I love the horseradish. Crane. Crane. Yes, yes, absolutely. I make my own now. You know. Sorry, wait, can we just clarify? You make your own horse right? How do, yeah. I don't even know how you go about doing that, but that sounds like an awful lot of effort. No, no, it's not too it's not too bad. You buy the raw horseradish in the green grocery, you buy your beetroots, you cook your beetroots. So I make a little bit of borscht from the beetroots that I cook, and then you just grate down the horseradish and the beetroot with a little bit of sugar, salt, and acetic acid, and I've got my own crane, and it is three times as strong as the stuff oh. you buy in the oh, shop. Oh, that's too strong. Oh, no, no, I like strong no. crane. Oh, no, oh. I, I like go, crane, in your, not too strong. In your mouth and down your nose. Oh, it's brilliant. It. It's like wasabi. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes, exactly that, isn't it? Well, Beautiful. it is. Of course, wasabi is Japanese horseradish. Mm. Mm. Anyway, I feel we digress. But the one way or another, we, we, had, a, <laughs> I think we had a good Pesach. It's, it's, it's great, yes, isn't it? Have you noticed that when we get together and we talk about something, it's always about food? Always. Well, that's Jewish, isn't yes. it? Apart it's from Yom Kippur. Jewish views already. Yes, it's <laughs> that's Jewish right. from Yom Kippur. <laughs> Food is the most important thing. It is. And mm-hmm. it's a good family get-together. And my very orthodox grandmother, who was a Rebbitzin, she always said, she always said that food was the most important part of the religion. Always. That's because you get the family together and everybody's there. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, well, we hope that you listening had a very happy and pleasant Pesach. By the way, well. I'm still eating the horseradish. Excellent. The crane, I mean. <laughs> Are you eating it till next year? Till next uh, Pesach, yes. God willing. He's made too much, clearly. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Around 250 women from the Jewish and Muslim community have pledged to stand shoulder to shoulder against racism by launching a new campaign known as Active Allies. It started at the annual conference hosted by the Jewish and Muslim Women Network, Nisa Nashim. And to tell us more about it, we can speak to the founders of the said network, Laura Marks and Julie Siddiqui, who join us now. Now, Laura, what can you tell me about this? First of all, lovely to talk to you and thank you for having us on. Yes, we had our conference and we decided that there was way too much anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on the rise. But the key thing about our decision was that we realized we need to do this work together. There's lots and lots of people working against hatred against their own community. But actually, we feel very strongly that we are in this together. Whilst anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, which is anti-Muslim racism, whilst they have similarities, they're also very different. So we're not pretending they're the same. We're not pretending they're based on the same 
prejudices or the same tropes, but they both affect us and they particularly affect women. And our aim is to do something together as allies, specifically focusing on the issues that face women. How did you go out and find people at the beginning? We realized that we were onto something. We did an event early on and we did it kind of last minute and we had about 150 women who came, both Jewish and Muslim. And we kind of thought, okay, we're onto something here because as we started to discuss things with them, they had all sorts of amazing ideas very early on. And actually, if you looked in the room, you would have felt that you were looking at people who've known each other for a long time. Hmm. So it kind of, the chemistry just kind of worked. And then I think as we've gone on over the last few years, that's what we felt in everything that we've done. And sometimes it, it might be that someone contacts us from a local area and we then help them to find a person from the other community. So that's happened a few times and sort of matchmake them. And then they go out and have a coffee and see if they get on. And if they do, then that forms the very you know, important core of the group locally. And then they then bring each other brings friends together and then it kind of goes from there so each group is is unique in terms of its which area it is and the people that are involved but actually there's a lot of similarities well in terms of people just bringing their friends initially and then it kind of branches out from there it seems and some of the i noticed that some of the or a couple of the women that you've got involved is rachel riley who's been very vociferous in this but you've also got the met police commissioner cressida did well, that's right. They both came and spoke at the conference, as did Debbie Weeks-Bernard, who's the Deputy Mayor of London in charge of integration. And they both came and spoke as women. We know you know, very well in the Jewish community what Rachel Riley's been going through. But what's interesting is what she's going through is what high-profile Jewish women are going through. There is a, a very deep misogyny out there, particularly on the far right, actually, though she's been hit by the far left as well which is anti-women. And that's one of the things that Muslim and Jewish women really share in common, is a, a hatred of women, which seems really sort of surprising in this day and age, but it is a very strong prejudice on the far right. Rachel's been incredibly brave talking about these issues, but we didn't want people just to talk about hatred. We also talked to her about her life and her, her experiences and, and being a Jewish woman because you know, what brings Jewish women together is not just hatred, uh, together with Muslim women, it's not just hatred, it's it's shared beliefs, shared values, shared festivals, we've got lots and lots in common. And both Rachel and Cressida talked about their experiences of being women and the issues that face them and that those issues are the same whether you're Jewish, Muslim or anything else. Has there been any resistance from either community? Yeah, there has. I mean, I would say from a Muslim perspective, I think the Muslim community maybe finds it a bit harder to get their head around this kind of work. I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think it's really because historically, and even now, you know, a lot of what, what happens between Muslims and Jews in Britain is framed by what's happening in, you know, essentially in Israel. Mm. And then there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of stereotypes, a lot of misconceptions. And so people almost kind of err on the side of caution and are just not really sure what to make of it. So they kind of keep away. I've certainly seen that, but I've also seen, you know, a few individuals, particularly online, trying to disrupt what we're doing. I wouldn't say it's a lot of people, but there are enough. Sometimes those people are very loud. And so they try to, you know, keep that wedge between because actually what we're doing is doesn't fit their narrative of them and us, of these communities not getting on. And so as soon as you start to do something different, people like that get, you know, get upset but I just think that, you know, the more we do it with actual women, you know, people who really do want to see this work, the more I can see 
it's helping others to understand the importance of it. And so, you know, as soon as you bring people together and make friends, then those friends become friends who want to stick up for their, you know, the person from the other community. And we've seen a lot of that happening. So mm-hmm. I think it's about confidence as well. And sometimes people are not sure, so they kind of think, Mom, I don't know about this, I don't know what to make of this work, so I'll keep away from it. But we just have to keep doing it. And the more we do it, the more people come. You know, this conference that we had recently, new people came who haven't been before, who have ever got involved before. And, you know, for me, that's a good sign of something that's working. Did you have any other faith women or women of no faith at all involved with this? We do have a few. Obviously, the issues that affect all women are the same. So, you know, whether you are a woman who is black or you are a woman in the LGBT community or disabled women, all of these things compile to make your life more difficult. And we know that intersectionality is a big issue for women. And so obviously, if you are a black Muslim woman, there are many prejudices that face you, not just being a woman or not just being Muslim. So we do have other women in the room. But the point about Nisan Hashim is to start with these two communities, because we know that these two communities have a particularly troubled relationship. And an enormous amount of it's because of things that are going on way abroad, nothing to do with anything that's going on here. But it inevitably comes into our lives here. And so we have chosen to focus very much on these two faith groups, these two communities, mm-hmm. because, you know, most Muslim women will never meet a Jew in Britain today. Um, most Jewish women may know Muslims because they're 10 times more Muslims, but they won't have them in their friendship group. And these two groups are absolutely key. And not only in terms of their relationship with each other, but also in terms of wider society's relationship with each of us. So, yes, there will be other people in the room. And we do, I mean, in fact, Christopher Dick obviously is neither, nor is Debbie Weeks Bernard. But our focus is on Jewish and Muslim women. OK, what can you tell me about the hashtag Active Allies campaign? So we feel very strongly that there's an enormous amount of people out there saying this must stop and no more, enough is enough. And, you know, there's an enormous amount of rhetoric around hatred at the moment. Amount of events I've been to recently where people are telling us that this is enough and it's going to stop. But what are people actually doing about it? So our active allies campaign is the active part is very important, as important as the allies because we think that we actually need to do things. So one of the things, for example, we had a charter of five things, and one of the things that we want is for every political party to look at its policies on hatred, particularly towards Jews and Muslims, but specifically about women. You know, what are they doing about gendered Islamophobia and gendered anti-Semitism? We want more women around policy tables. At the moment, there are remarkably few, and it's not good enough. We want the language to change so that people stop using such hateful language. And we want to find ways to get women to actually be empowered to get out and do things around this. So our charter is very specifically about actions that people can do together. And we feel, as I say, that that's very different from a a rhetoric, which is just saying, you know, we shouldn't have any more of this stuff and we are stronger together. We want to see action. And there's still such a lack of understanding, I would say, from both groups of the other. Muslims don't really understand, I think, often what anti-Semitism is actually about. And, and importantly, they don't necessarily realise the personal impact that it has on people. And I think there's still a long way to go for people, not just from the Jewish community, but generally around what does current day Islamophobia or anti-Muslim hate, what does it actually look like and how does it play out and what kind of fear does it create in, in Muslim women in particular? 
So I think there's still a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of learning that needs to be done. And at an event like that, it's a very useful way of getting across some of that information that people, I think, found very useful. And it helped them to you know, develop their understanding, which I think is important. How can the Jewish community get involved and what should they be doing? Well, a lot of the things that are in our charter, everybody should be doing. So whether we're calling out anti-Semitism or Islamophobia, we can all do that. In fact, I would strongly encourage the Jewish community to get involved in calling out Islamophobia. Why not? What's the downside? One form of hatred is as bad as another. It might not be aimed at us, but we all know, first of all, that one form of hatred leads to another. And anyway, it's not right to allow Islamophobia to go by unchecked. People can be meeting their Muslim neighbors in the Jewish community, get out there, meet people. People can set up Nisan Hashim groups. People can watch their language online and stop using nuanced, nasty language when they're talking about other groups, other community groups. People can be campaigning and lobbying their political parties about looking at gendered Islamophobia and gendered anti-Semitism. There's lots of things that everyone can do, and the more people get involved, the better. And how can people get in touch with you? They can contact us through our website, which is www.nisanashim.org, or email info at nisanashim.org, and we would love to hear from people. Laura Marks and Julie Siddiqui, thank you very much for talking to us. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, the next guest on this month's programme is, I would say, more used to being the one asking the questions. And it's particularly strange for me because, actually, I have to confess right here and now, I've actually spent the last couple of years producing one of his weekly shows on BBC Radio London. And you may have even noticed that I've actually stepped away from JW3 at the moment as well. We're in a studio environment here at the BBC. Robert Elms is who joins us now. And Robert, this must be a bit peculiar for you because you're not normally the one giving the interviews. You're normally the one doing the interviews, aren't you? I am usually sitting on the other side of the desk, it has to be said, and asking the questions rather than answering them. Um, It's also, I guess, a little bit unusual for me in that I'm not technically Jewish. And therefore, I'm sort of thinking, what am I doing here? Oh, what are you doing here indeed? But you have, you've always said that you've got Jewish blood in you somewhere along the lines, haven't you? Oh, certainly have, yeah. My my mum's dad was Jewish, which makes my mum not Jewish. Uh, and she wasn't brought up in the Jewish faith. But somehow Jewish culture, I think growing up in northwest London, as I did, Jewish culture was just sort of seeped into you. I went to a Orange Hill Grammar School, which I think was probably when I was there, 40 maybe even 50 percent jewish so so many of the people i surrounded myself with so i grew up with that food that language knowing some yiddish it was just part of my culture really and it's a part of my culture that i'm really proud of and also i suppose that when it's just something you grow up with it's normal you don't even realize that actually it's not part of who you are is it no absolutely and and also i i think it's such a strong part of the culture that surrounds all of us. I mean, I, for me, one of the reasons I've loved presenting a, a radio show about London for 24 years is it means I get to present a radio show about the whole world, effectively, because they're all here. But I can't imagine a London which didn't have such an incredible contribution from the Irish community, the West Indian community, and the Jewish community. And those kind of, I mean, and everyone else who's made a contribution, but those three in particular were sort of the pillars of the London where I grew up in. My family were from... Notting Hill and then we moved over towards Burnt Oak which was a very Irish estate when I was growing up but it was next door to Golders Green and Hendon and, and Edgware so all of those elements were part of my the culture that I grew up with So you're no stranger to a salmon bagel then? I can even do 
Kneidlich. Hey, look at that. <laughs> Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, I and, and I would say yeah. bagel, thank you very much. Oh, crap. Well, that's me told, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> bagel, bagel, whatever. Schmerl, schmerl. Okay. Uh, let's have a look in particular, though, because the reason why you are coming to JW3 in May is because that you have written, dare I say, yes, another book. How do you find time to do it? You've written loads of books. I've written a few, but to be honest, though, I've only written four or five over 30 odd years. It's still more than most. It's more than mm. most. And it's pretty tough when you present a radio show six days a week as well. What I do, to be honest, when I'm writing a book is I get up very early in the morning. I'm a morning person. By the afternoon, I tend to I tend to be eating and drinking and sitting on the sofa watching rubbish. But at five o'clock in the morning, I can get up and write. So for a year for this one, I got up every morning at five, six days a week, very disciplined and wrote for two or three hours before I went and did my radio show. And in particular, the book is London Made Us. Now, this is a memoir of an ever-changing city. What exactly does that mean? Is it just London through your eyes and the years you've lived here? No, although it's partly that. It's also London through my broader family's eyes. So it takes my family back a bit, working out where they came from, how we became Londoners and, and the kind of mix that goes into a London family. But what I wanted, the reason it's called London Made Us rather than London Made Me is I wanted to write a collective memoir, if that makes any sense. So it's my memories, but it's also so many of the memories that I've absorbed through presenting my radio show. We do a thing on the show called Notes and Queries, where we kind of entice these amazing London stories and, and mysteries solved. And I'd collected loads of those over the years, stories of buses being hijacked on the way to Cuba or bus drivers leaping over Tower Bridge as it opened up or a monkey jazz band on Latimer Road that my dad might have seen when he was sitting in his pram in 1928. I mean, just scores of these stories. And so what I've done is I've told stories that are mine and my family's, but also stories that I've somehow absorbed over all the years of presenting the show. And they're the it's kind of a history book, but it's the history... I think that falls through the cracks in the pavement. It's not the history of politicians or famous people or celebrities. It's the history of our everyday lives as we've lived it in this city, which does change all the time. Absolutely, it changes all the time. And what's quite extraordinary about London, if you really stop and think about it, I'm sure that you'll vouch for this more than anyone, is that because it is ever changing, you don't really have time but to scratch the surface. And then once you have scratched the surface, history goes and changes itself anyway. It's just ever developing. It is. And, and the book was prompted by the death of my mother, which occurred a few years ago now. And one of the last... She was born in Pimlico. So she was born by the Thames and she died by the Euston Road in UCH. And she'd lived all her life in this city. She'd been a bus conductress, a clippy. So she knew it very well at certain stages. And when she was close to the end, we were talking a lot. I was really trying to just get, you know, any stories I'd left untold by her. And she, one of the last things she said to me, sitting in UCH, looking out the window, was, this is no longer my London. I don't know it. She was slightly sad, because I think what she realised is that she was going. But as she was going, her London was going with her. It had already gone. She grew up in a London of... of pea supers. She grew up in a London of factories by the river. She grew up in a very, very different place. And so what I realised by that is, all of our Londons go with us I'm 60 now it's just, I'm just literally about to celebrate my 60th birthday to so, which I say impossible by the way thank you yeah fluent in schmooze you could also say muscle tough but yeah then... <laughs> <laughs> now you're just showing off <laughs> and, and therefore two thirds or three quarters of my London has gone and I looked back I did a list for myself of all the things that have vanished whether it was 
the Odeon at Marble Arch, where we used to go when we were kids, the, the school I went to, Orange Hill, which is no longer there up in Edgware, the, so many of the kind of landmarks of my London had gone. So it's a book about that. But it's not a book saying it was all better then. I don't think it was all better then. Many, many things are better now. But it constantly changes. And is that what defines your London for you as your London landmarks not to quote of course your listed Londoner feature well I think what happens because this city is so big and so kind of expansive we all create our own Londons that we live in little parts of the city and we connect them I, I live now in Camden Town but I still go back to the Notting Hill where my family were from to go to football every other week and, and then I go into Soho to see my mates and I go down to South London to see my tailor darling and, and so we all create our own Londons and it's those people whose Londons overlap with yours who become your friends and, and your fellow Londoners but there's whole Londons I don't know I mean I'm sorry, but almost anything over the river. <laughs> I'm a North but London boy. don't you think boy. that's what makes it so exciting, though, yes. is that there's always bits of London you're never going to truly know? One of the things I say about London is it can exhaust you, but you can never exhaust it. No one can know it all. And, and I'm a bit of a know-it-all. And, and I don't even claim to. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. I've lived in other places. I've lived in New York. I've lived in Barcelona, both of which are great cities both of which felt like small towns to me compared to London. Yeah, well, it's not surprising at all. One particular part of London that you are definitely going to be found in towards the end of May is JW3. You're going to be in conversations with your old chum, Jason Solomons. Exactly. Jason, who, well, comes on and does the, the, the cinema reviews on my show and has done for 20 odd years, but also sits in when I'm away these days and kind of presents the show. Because I think in many ways we share very, very similar Londons. He's a bit younger than me. He's a gooner, um, whereas I'm a QPR fan. But we share an interest in... In, in the, the culture, both high and low, we're both, you know, a bit educated above our station. My station was Burnt Oak, his was Golders Green, but I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we both love this city and we love the, we love the, the minutiae of this city. I like the, the, the scruffy bits of the city. I like the, the grimy bits of the city. I like the, the bits that haven't been kind of, you know, polished beyond endurance. And so does Jason. So we'll be talking about our Londons and, and the book that I've written about it. And I think there is no denying that you are London summed up because you, you've you lived so much of it. And I mean that with the greatest amount of respect. That's no reference to any age. It is based on what you've been saying, fronting a show for the last 25 nearly years about London, living and breathing it on a daily basis. You have to have absorbed a Cer part of it. Certainly breathing it on a daily basis. And I've got the asthma to prove it um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> because I ride a bicycle around yeah. town, which I also think gives me a very specific kind of way of seeing and feeling this city of ours. I think the point about it is that I grew up, my family came from Notting Hill. We then moved out to Burnt Oak, which was, you know, on the outer reaches of the Northern Line. And I always felt from a very young age that I wanted to reclaim sort of inner London. So from I went to university here, I went to the LSE. I kind of made my life here. I lived in squats in Tottenham. I lived in places in Clerkenwell when I was a kid. And I've always loved the city itself. The city has always been a part of my ambition, if you like, to get to know this place, to somehow feel kind of on top of it. The problem is, of course, the minute you feel on top of it, it changes again. Exactly what I was saying before. <laughs> well, one thing that is going to change is that on Wednesday, the 29th of May, you will be at JW3 at 8pm. Tickets are £15 and more information can be found at jw3.org.uk. 
Robert Elms, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me on The Jewish Views. And it's not only thank you for that, because there are some who may or may not know this, but I have just ended my association with producing your programme. So thank you for putting up with me for the last couple of years as well. No, the thanks are all mine. You, you do your job with great elan. Well, I'd take that as a huge compliment. Thank you, sir. Phil, thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Well, Shavuot is nearly upon us. It is, of course, the time when the community marks the receiving of the Torah. And you may know that already, and you'll probably know how we celebrate it in the UK. But what about somewhere less familiar, such as uh, Syria? Well, our next guest is here at JW3 to explore the Syrian song of Torah. And he's Rabbi Joseph Dweck, the senior rabbi of the Sephardic community. And I'm delighted to say he joins us now. What exactly is that, the celebration of? Uh, From Syria, you mean? Hmm. It's a good question, Clive. Well, I can say that tradition is essentially rooted in the city of Aleppo that I am familiar with and I know my family comes from Aleppo, has lived in Aleppo, lived in Aleppo for about 500 years. So the the song that's associated with any festival will be very much Middle Eastern in taste, although some of it is influenced by Spanish Jews, because in Aleppo after 1492 and the expulsion from Spain because of the Inquisition, there were many Spanish Jews who arrived in Aleppo and influenced the indigenous popul- the indigenous Jewish population in terms of their song and so on. And so if we're talking about Shavuot, there is obviously it revolves a great deal around the Torah, the giving of the Torah. We read the book of Ruth on Shavuot and the tonal scale that runs throughout Shavuot in the Aleppo tradition is what we call Husseini. So I'll give you a bit of it. It's It's one of the Middle Eastern tonal scales. So to just to familiarize a bit with what what I mean by tonal scale. So if you think of a piano, you have the white keys and the black keys that will play the major scale or minor scale of western music. Now in between the white and black keys are a whole bunch of notes that uh, are quarter quarter notes so if you've got the white key and the black key you're a half step up from from you know the note uh, so there are notes in between there that middle eastern music will use in its musical traditions and repertoire so hosseini that i just sang is one of them and and our songs and uh, readings and cantillations and so on and so forth basically for Shavuot are involved in that so we'll read uh, Megillat Rut it'll sound like this Vahi bime shefot hashofetim vahi rabaretz vayelich ish mibet lechem Yehuda so it'll go on like that but we read the book of Ruth. We read what's called the Azharot. The Azharot are poetic 
enumerations of the 613 mitzvot of the Torah. Our tradition is to read the Azharot that were written by Shilmo ibn Gabirol, who was a great Spanish poet. And we go through, we, we split it up because outside of Israel and in Aleppo, of course, this was the case, we celebrate two days of the Yom Tov, of the, of the festival. And so we will split the Azharot and the Book of Ruth over the two days. So we will read the Do's, Right and the don'ts and the do's the positive commandments are done on the first day and the negative commandments are done on the second day it takes much longer to do the negative commandments because there's 365 of those where there's only 248 of the do's but we go through we go through that song so here in London yeah with a big Syrian community originally Syrian mm. community in the congregation mm. Sephardic congregation now are we going to do it all in, in Lauderdale Road, or are we going to have a, a special Syrian service somewhere else? So it, to, the truth is that the Syrian Jews from Aleppo really didn't come overwhelmingly to London. Most of them, when they, if they were to leave and arrive in England, went to Manchester. So our synagogue at Lauderdale Road will be overwhelmingly Iraqi in origin ah, rather than yes. Syrian in origin yes. but being that it is still the Spanish and Portuguese congregation we still do have a, a nice amount of Spanish and Portuguese families the tradition officially at the synagogue is Spanish and Portuguese so we will still read the Azharot of Shalomo ibn Gabirol as many of the Sephardim do but we'll read it in a tune that is Spanish and Portuguese in origin rather than you know from Aleppo so you won't be performing the, the I won't be doing the Syrian tunes uh, at Lauderdale Road no. Would you like to? Well, it's interesting. I, as senior rabbi of the Spanish-Portuguese community, I recognize it as one of my responsibilities to hold the minhag or the customs of the Spanish and Portuguese community in trust. So, no, I don't look to impose my own personal minhag on the minhag of the kahal. I, I think it's very important that the kahal, that the community should know its tradition, to learn to you know, sing its tradition and perform its tradition. So no, I won't be doing that. Although there are elements of the community that are interested in it, and so I'm happy to kind of, you know, sprinkle it in when it's welcome. But overwhelmingly, I think it's important to hold the communities, the Spanish and Portuguese tradition. Uh, how will the evening at JW3, how will that work then? Right. So the evening at JW3 will be kind of a mix because it's essentially coming from my perspective, my personal experience of these festivals and how it is that we celebrate them. And because I essentially am, you know, at the crossroads between the the custom of Syria and the customs of the Spanish and Portuguese of England, and I, I come from both and essentially serve both in a certain capacity, I'll be presenting both, a taste of both. It will definitely present the Syrian tunes, and the Syrian customs, but I'll also offer some elements of the Spanish and Portuguese as well, which I think are significant and that uh, would uh, interest the audience. When you, you were born in America. Though, I was born you? in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles? Yeah. So. Born and raised. But did you, when you were young, mm -hmm. when you were a child, when in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. were you brought up on the Syrian? Very much so. My father and my grandfather, my mother's father, my maternal grandfather lived in Los Angeles with us, were very much seeped in Syrian tradition and they made it their priority to teach it to, the, to us, to me and my brothers and sister. And so, yes, I mean, I was particularly interested in it 
but um, yeah, they they definitely taught it to us, and it was very much it it uh, permeated our family. Yeah. So when you first became a, a rabbi, were mm-hmm. you, uh, if if you don't mind me putting it like this, were you a Syrian rabbi or were you another sort? No, I definitely was a Syrian rabbi. So my first my first position was with the Syrian community in Brooklyn, New York, and I served that community for over 16 years. And it's interesting because I'll tell you, my grandfather had left the Syrian community in New York, which essentially is one of the largest Syrian communities in the world, and moved to Los Angeles, but he had taken with him the customs that the community had from that time, and he had lived in Los Angeles for 40 years. And when I went back to New York, I saw that the, the, even the community itself had kind of forgotten some of the elements of the, you know, the standard tradition. So I, I taught it, I taught it to them. I had to teach them the El Nora Alila, which is the famous piyut that we sing at the end of Yom Kippur, uh, the Syrian way, because it kind of had become this Yerushalmi rendition. So, do you finally can I ask you? Do you do you hope to in in London? have more Syrian type services that people can hear and find out about. Well, what we do at Lauderdale Road, because it's Middle Eastern in, in nature, is we will do one every couple of months. And the community really actually enjoys it. There's many Iraqi Jews, like I said, Jews from Egypt, Lebanon, and so on. And people that just in general are interested in hearing the more Middle Eastern tunes. So we do them on occasion. We sprinkle the services, the the Oriental services throughout the year. So I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will want to come on Sunday the 2nd of June here at JW3. And uh, the tickets are very reasonable too. They're £12. And more information can be found at jw 3 .org.uk And may I thank you very, very much indeed. It's absolutely fascinating. Pleasure. We look forward to seeing everyone. Thank you, you, Claudia. I shall be there. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, a North London-based community has been granted planning permission by Barnet Council to demolish its existing synagogue and construct an environmentally friendly religious hub. Finchley Reform's new premises will include a community centre and a nursery and it's set to become the first purpose-built religious building of its kind in the UK. To tell us more about it, we're joined by Adrian Seif, who's the chair of the Green Team, rather appropriately, at Finchley Reform Synagogue. Adrian, I suppose one has to start with, please tell us, what is an eco-friendly shul? What, what makes it different to any other synagogue? Or what will make it a different, I should say. So I think in building the new community centre, the opportunity to think about the environment and the social impact of what we actually do. And so to build something that not only meets the needs of today's community, but doesn't take away from the communities tomorrow by, as is very relevant at the moment, thinking about its carbon impact on its impact upon climate change but also thinking about its broader ethical impacts. And so we're seeking to build a community that takes all of that into account. I suppose you'd be forgiven for people not really thinking along those lines, though, because most of us, we rather innocently go to shul, whether it be on Saturday, whether it be on the High Holy Days, whenever it may be. And we don't think about what it takes to actually heat such a a massive building and what it would take to ensure that it doesn't leave quite the same carbon footprint that, say, many churches do. That's not to pick on churches. It just so happens, based on them being built from so long ago, that's what happens. 
I think that yeah, historically, most of us, I think you're quite right, wouldn't be thinking more broadly. But I think it's very much ingrained within our Jewish heritage to be thinking about more broadly our impacts upon what we do. I think there's a strong and rich heritage that we inherit in that. And is this something that means something to you personally? Because you, you, if you are the chair of the green team, one can only assume that you have a bit of an interest in the environment and that sort of thing in the first place. Or one can assume that in the Jewish community, if somebody points their finger at you, then you'll point it out. But yes, I do have a personal <laughs> long-standing uh, interest in it, actually. Um, we, a few years ago, bought our, our home and had it renovated to a what's called a passive house standard which is ah, an so your there. house has almost become the the prototype for the new synagogue potentially i think they're probably quite different but i think the idea of really thinking about how we can build something that you know not only helps the environment but actually helps our builds as well in the community in the long term as well now this is there's nearly always one problem standing in the way of a community doing anything and that's the community have you found any resistance towards this? Have you found people getting upset at the thought of losing the existing building? Or has everyone in the community been quite on board and really up for this? I think broadly, there is a huge enthusiasm for the opportunity. The community is kind of, the community building company is not really fit for purpose. We have so much going on there that the other day an activity was taking place in the kitchen because there was no other space to do it. So I think the community recognises the need and I think many members of the community are really excited by the opportunity that this this offers us. And when does this all begin? Because obviously you've just obtained planning permission but what's the the plan moving forward and the time scale that we're looking at for this? We've been working really closely with some excellent architects and some excellent engineers who are really doing some really detailed and important design work. I think the goal is that we hope to kind of begin the works you know, if, if we're fortunate by the end of the year but thinking about that as the approximate time frame at the moment that's in our minds and back to the actual eco synagogue itself what will congregants notice is different obviously it's going to look very shiny new and modern and that's great but what would you say would be the standout features of it that differ to your run-of-the-mill synagogue? So I'd say that, you know, if, if you went into a building that was an environmentally friendly building and one that wasn't, looking at it, you couldn't tell the difference. But interesting, the primary difference will be its comfort. Environmentally sustainable buildings are inherently more comfortable because they really think about the design with people in it and how to minimise the overheating and getting too hot when you have big functions going on and to maintain its warmth in the colder times and to keep fresh air flowing through it. So it's actually the comfort that people will probably notice most. How long have you been a member of Finchley Reform? Is that akin <laughs> to asking someone how old they are? Is that really brutal? Well, no, 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 it, it, it just <laughs> tests my memory, but my an actual member, I guess, probably about 10 years. <laughs> Oh, very good. Okay, so relatively new school, yeah. considering. Yeah, I've been, a, I've, I've been along to it over many years, but joined about 10 years ago. And what makes Finchley Reform Synagogue Finchley Reform Synagogue? I think it's got a history of being both very interested in the community, in the traditions, and also in the wider world. So it has a very strong, with Rabbi Jeffrey Newman, who's the, now the Emeritus Rabbi, a really strong social conscience with the kind of Rabbi Miriam Berger and Cantor Zoe Jacobs, a really 
powerful leadership at the moment. Rabbi Howard Cooper, it would be at least 20 years ago and possibly more, did a most powerful sermon where he looked at the world through the eyes of Noah, thinking about the kind of environment through the eyes of Noah. So it's got a very long social action tradition and environmental interest. So it seems only appropriate that Fincher Reform Synagogue is, as it were, paving the way for potentially other communities to start thinking along the same lines and becoming possibly more economically friendly. I think, obviously, when it's paving the way, it will be using sustainable paving. But Of um, course, sorry, of course. sustainable paving. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and it's also a part of a much broader community called eco-synagogues, which Fincher Reform is a part of, but a number of other synagogues. Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg is a very strong leading light in that, which is really working with communities across all the denominations, from the liberal, reform, Masorti, orthodox, through a programme based upon eco-churches to look at how synagogues can, in gradual steps, even when they're not building a new building, which not every synagogue's going to do every day, can look at what they are doing and make it more sustainable. And do you feel the pressure somehow that because you are going to be the first community to have this purpose-built religious building of this sort in the UK, is there added pressure to get it right? I don't feel the pressure, but I'm sure there are others that do. But I suspect the pressures that they feel will be partly that, but also partly just the pressures of relocating a community during a building, getting the building right so it lasts forever. I must say, that there, although we'll be the first Jewish community centre in the country there are there is a we may be the first to build but there may be another one that gets there before us in a church which is looking at a similar sort of thing oh so the race is on <laughs> but obviously environmentally friendly race environmentally friendly race well, it's absolutely fascinating and of course if anyone wants more information does Finchley Reform Synagogue have its own website that people can potentially go to and find out more about your community absolutely the website you can find at frsonline.org so frs for finchley reform synagogue online.org and we've been hearing about it from the chair of the green team at finchley reform synagogue adrian seif adrian thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on this episode of the jewish views thank you it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the month and uh, this month it's rabbi harvey belovsky from golders green united synagogue The month of May this year falls entirely within what we call the Omer period, a kind of time-bound journey that takes us from Pesach, the great festival of liberation, to Shavuot, Pentecost, which is the festival of receiving the Torah. It's 49 days, and we count those days one at a time. There's a long-standing disagreement between the rabbis as to whether we count days in the Omer or to the Omer. Now, this might seem of academic interest, but actually it helps us to focus on a question. Are we counting away from Pesach, or are we counting towards Shavuot? But does it really matter? When the Israelites were liberated from Egypt, something we celebrated just a while ago, the whole goal was to take them to Mount Sinai, to meet God as it were, to discover God's will for the Jewish people and for humanity, and then use that as an archetype of how they would behave eventually in the promised land. I think it does matter whether you're counting from or to something, because it speaks of how we consider time. Time is the most precious commodity. Most of us imagine that time will be infinite. We've got all the time in the world, but we haven't. I was thinking that even if we're blessed to live for a full century, 100 years, that's only 36,500 days. It's not that many when put like that.
The Talmud considers when we count the Omer, and what that means is that each evening, or if you forget during the day, we say today is, let's say it's the 11th day. Today is day 11, which makes one week and four days of the Omer. Of course, on the night before Shavuot, we will say today is the 49th day, which is seven weeks of the Omer. The Talmud's concerned whether we need to bother to mention the weeks or the days will do. I think it makes a world of difference because we're supposed to be sensitizing ourselves to the value of time, the passage of time, and the cycles of time. Days are natural rhythms. The sun rises, the sun sets, the same time again, tomorrow, the cycle repeats itself. To some degree, months and years are also part of the natural cycle. Those times pass quite internally. We have internal rhythms that mark and understand those times. But we also have notions of external rhythms of time. Shabbat, a week, a festival. These are things which are imposed and represent the will of God. And sensitivity to time requires days and weeks, both the internal rhythm of time and the external rhythm of time. The key thing when we count those days and weeks is to realize that sometimes when things aren't going so well, we might wish days, weeks or even months away, hoping that things will get better. But every day is a day to be treasured, whether it's what we can achieve with our internal narrative or whether we are meeting the wishes of God who instructs us how to use our time in the best possible way. The most important thing to realize is that time will never be recaptured. Every moment is precious, a moment that we will never have again. And counting those days, weeks, and if we say even minutes, teaches us to make every moment count, everything to be precious, and to have a sense that as the days pass, everything must be invested with the maximum possible meaning. Thank you very much to Rabbi Harvey Belovsky from Golders Green United Synagogue with our rabbinic thought for the month. And that's it for the May edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you very much indeed to all of our guests, to Laura Marks, Julie Siddiqui, Robert Elms, Rabbi Joseph Dweck, Adrian Seif, and a massive thank you goes to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and of course, to you at home for listening. Don't forget, you can always listen to this episode or indeed any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with JW3, but from me, Phil Dave. From me, Tony Honigberg. And from me, Clive Roslin. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.